Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey there, you're listening to episode 213 of Sexology Podcast. This week marks our fourth year anniversary. I am beyond excited to celebrate this anniversary with you guys. I am grateful for every single one of you that showed up and has continued to show up every week and joining me on these conversations. I have tons of exciting giveaway for our anniversary. I have a packet of $154 product from Promescent and two $50 gift cards that I'm giving away for this, this month. So make sure you're listening until end of this episode. At the end of the episode, I'll show share with you how you can enter for this giveaway. So our guest today is Macy Day. As I shared with you guys last week, we're talking about how you can deepen your relationship and intimacy with your partner. This is our series and we're going to talk about how you can cultivate erotic vitality because many people that I work with and I come in contact with, they are in a sexless relationship. They been together for years and years and they feel like sex is no longer exciting so they they either they're not having sex or the sex that they're having is just so not satisfying that's why that i thought would be wonderful to have macy on her show today she just published a book called passion and presence a couple guide to awakened intimacy and mindful sex to tell us more about some of the secrets of making sure the relationship remains exciting and more importantly sex is exciting for for couples in a long-term relationship so she is an asac certified sex therapist, licensed professional counselor, and certified therapist and trainer of Hakomi Mindful Somatic Psychotherapy. As a sex therapist, her focus is helping couples deepen their erotic connection mindfully. She's a frequent conference speaker. She has graduate degree from Harvard University and Georgia State University and doctorate in human sexuality from Parkmore Institute. She has a number of different accolades. You can see her full bio in our show notes. So make sure you're checking out her website and specifically her new book. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Macy Day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Macy Day on our show. Macy, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad to have you on the show. I was honored that I received a copy of your book and it, mm-hmm. it is full of great content. And you know what's interesting is it has a different perspective compared to what many people adopt when it comes to a long-term relationship. Because what people think usually is it's either that you have this excitement of having great sexual experiences and you are in a, a kind of new relationship 
Or if you're in a long-term relationship, then the sexual experiences is are at best below average. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I know you talked about it in your book that you help many people navigate this dilemma that they have. So I think it would be a good place for us to start talking about various stages uh, that couple go through when it comes to love and sexual phases. I'd be happy to. Well, first of all, I think you're right. People have kind of a a sort of binary (laughs) about how relationships can play out, and I'm hoping to offer more options. So in my model, Passion and Presence, I look at three different stages of erotic coupling. And stage one is enchantment, stage two is disenchantment, and stage three, re-enchantment. And unfortunately, most couples really end up stuck in stage two because they don't see an alternative except to desperately try to get back to stage one, which is impossible. So my whole mission is to give couples a realistic yet hopeful and potentially transformational vision of how erotic life can thrive well into our golden years. So basically at stage one, and I'm sure many of your guests have talked about this at length, we are infused with a kind of passion cocktail that consists of dopamine and testosterone and endogenous opioids so that we feel good when we're around our lover. And every time we have sex, it's a little bit like winning the jackpot. It always delivers. And so for that reason, it's pretty magnetic. It's pretty frequent and spontaneous. And because we're under the influence of some of these hormones, our behaviors tend to be relatively disinhibited and even exploratory and experimental, all the things that we lose when we fall into these routines. So what tends to happen after a while, because we can't really stay in that state forever, eventually we have to get out of bed and contend with real life, is that we move into another phase of our relationship that is literally quite disenchanting for most couples. And what marks this change is we kind of come down from the high and we find out, wow, we're really not as compatible as we thought we were. This easy flow that we had now feels awkward and clunky. Well, it was good for you. It kind of sucked for me or vice versa. We end up disappointed. We're in power struggles. So those kinds of things, along with another reality, if we end up becoming domestic partners, we are assuming all of these roles that are mostly Eros inhibiting. So we're not feeling sexy or sexual a whole lot. And by the time we get to the bedroom, we're exhausted. And so we're more likely at stage two to start to privilege efficiency over exploration. And by that, I mean, I know what turns you on. You know what turns me on. It's a little bit like paint by numbers. If I do this, scratch you there, lick you there, stroke you here, off to the orgasm we go and we lose. Even though we seem to know each other's arousal pathways, we lose the mystery, the surprise, the fun that makes stage one so hot and exciting. And there's one more thing that I emphasize that I don't 
hear about a lot. And that is something that has to do with what neuroscientists call our early emotional learning. So whether we got the sex talk or not, the official talk, we still learned a lot about sex as we were growing up in our family. And we were imprinting the states, the emotional states of the people around us when the topic featured sex or the TV featured sex or anything that just kind of remotely connected to eroticism. And so lo and behold, when we ourselves, sometimes a decade into our relationship, start to be sexual, we find ourselves experiencing aversive reactions and unpleasant emotions like shame or self-consciousness or fear, which we didn't feel before, and it's fairly mystifying. But what happens at phase two is our early imprints around sex light up automatically each time we make love. And there's obviously good news and bad news to that. The bad is that sex can, instead of being wonderful, can be aversive and triggering. So we start to avoid it. But the good news is we have this opportunity to work with these imprints that now encode as beliefs that are rendered visible in our long-term relationship. And so we can heal them if we choose to. And that's essentially what stage three is about. So at stage two, we're disheartened. That's this triggering. It's lackluster. As you said, we're not as compatible. We're exhausted. We're defaulting into numbing routines. And we kind of think, okay, I guess we're at the end of the road and our choice is to opt out out of sex or to opt out of the relationship or start to engage in what Tammy Nelson calls maintenance sex, where we're having sex because it's good for us and we should. And the experts say that we'll feel better and, oh, good, we can check that off of our list. We had it, but it's not, again, exciting. So if we change our orientation to challenge and see it as a growth opportunity, we can actually use the erotic portal for transformation. So at stage three, couples choose to wake up together as they work through their challenges as a mindful team. And in that process, they end up cultivating many of those same qualities that came naturally at stage one, like presence and openness and curiosity. And sex becomes exciting again as well. So at stage one, it's kind of hot and heavy. Stage two, kind of lackluster. At stage three, it's kind of everything, you know, where it's sort of unscripted because we don't know each other at stage one and it's scripted because we have our routines at stage two is improvised at stage three where at stage one we both had a lot of desire and at stage two one does the other doesn't or neither of us do at stage three we start to cultivate willingness which rosemary Bassan coined the term to express the idea there's so many reasons we can have sex. We don't have to feel spontaneous desire on the front end. And sometimes when we have sex, lo and behold, we get aroused and the desire follows. And so whereas that first phase is disinhibited and the second phase is more cautious, 
because we don't want to trigger each other. The third phase of my model and reenchantment, it's naked. We're really kind of showing what we want, who we are, our vulnerabilities. And instead of being goal-oriented, it's exploratory. So we can fall back in love. We can be enchanted with our partner and have satisfying, expansive sex, and in the process, grow wiser and more compassionate, more loving. What a beautiful and hopeful message, because I would imagine that's similar for your practice as well, that many people coming in in the second phase, resentful, they tried everything under the guy, like as far as it comes to different kinds of incorporating things in the bedroom. And there's just like not interested. And I talk to my clients about leftover sex, even if something yeah. worked so many years ago, if you're having, for example, your favorite food, if you're having that dish over and over and over, then it will lose that excitement. So this is the same for sex. And on top of that, you're right that the context changes. For many people, if they enter the kind of like marriage or partnership, then that that can change the relationship to almost a family from this exciting lover dynamic to a sibling and family kind of like a relation kind of dynamic. And no one want to have sex with their siblings. Most people, they don't. So that's, that's right. challenging too. So, and I love that you're talking about there is the possibility of third phase that you can connect with your partner in a different way, but it's meaningful. I know that in the book you were talking about element of mindfulness. And I would imagine many of our listeners, when they think about mindfulness, they think about, okay, showing up in the moment. And they would be kind of thinking that, what if I'm not interested in my partner anymore in the context? How can mindfulness help me? Well, that's such a great question. And there's so many different ways that I work with mindfulness. So what you just said, being here in the moment is a key part of it, that we experience more. We're here to see the many pathways we can take that we miss when we're running to the finish line or where our automatic programs are running us. So when we're mindful, we're able to source novelty in the familiar, which is what gets lost, of course, with time. And we start to feel like we know everything about our partner. We can actually imagine how sex is going to play out and not even bother having it <laughs> because there's nothing new there. So this sense of discovery and freshness is one key piece. But there's another, I mean, there's many but there's the, in service of what I call awakened intimacy, we can use mindfulness as a window into some of the habits and patterns that are shutting down our aliveness. Mm -hmm. And people are often very surprised. They have no idea that they have some kind of a belief that's preventing them from receiving or initiating or expressing or that some experiences early in life created a set of expectations that they are sort of playing forward. And what's really remarkable is sex does not begin in the bedroom. It starts so far before that with these concepts, we've had these expectations, this little silent automatic appraisal, all of those things shape our bedroom behaviors before we even begin to relate physically. So the whole notion of mindfulness is cultivating awareness 
and observing as we are making meaning, as we're going into a protective strategy, as we're starting to shut down, we can actually see all of this as it's unfolding. And therein gives us the option to make a different choice or to get curious about what's behind that. And that's the whole way we can use mindfulness to support this notion of using the erotic portal for transformation. Because it's so naked, we get a very clear picture of the ways we are not in direct contact with Eros and not in direct contact with life. Well, what a beautiful description. So for our listeners, in order for them to visualize this, so what are some previous wounds or previous pain that you feel like that you, you notice in people that re- reenact or kind of play out in their sexuality with their partner? Yeah, well, let's start with shame for one. You know, we all know that many of us struggle with body image issues, but let's say when we were first becoming sexual, somebody teased or ridiculed our body or even our technique. Really forevermore, we may carry this internal image of ourselves as flawed in some way. And so rather than being naked, and I don't just mean clothes off, I mean like showing up fully available, we're kind of hiding at the same time that we're trying to be intimate. And that makes it very difficult to open up to our erotic potential because we're having to manage some experience over here kind of ducking or trying to manage our discomfort. And a lot of energy goes into those things. Other things that can happen early in life is, you know, we start to develop and we get unwanted attention. And so instead of celebrating our transition into puberty and the birth of our sexuality, we again start to feel like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't even want to go there. I don't want anyone to see me. And we're more in this protected state rather than cultivating our pleasure and exploring our body and expressing what we want. But sometimes the kinds of things that I'm talking about have absolutely nothing to do with sex. They just show up in the sexual domain. So for example, if I learned in life, if experience taught me that my needs don't matter, that other people's needs are important, or I don't really have the power to shape experiences to my liking, I'm going to wait. I'm either going to wait for others to initiate, even though that might curb my enthusiasm for sex and generate resentful because resentment because it's on their terms, not mine. But I seriously don't know that there's another option. If I privilege other people's needs above my own, I may automatically go into the role of giver without even noticing that there's another option. And so my sex life starts to feel like it's very contained and limited. And when we turn the spotlight on those kinds of habits around expressing or initiating or giving or receiving, and there's so many more things we can notice, we often find that the roots to these behaviors go way, way back, often to something in our family of origin. And of course, once something is known to us, again, we can question it, we can integrate new experience that dis- experiences that disconfirm that prior learning. We can even as a couple around shame co-design healing experiences 
so that we start to extinguish the emotional learning connected to, to our early view of ourselves. So again, there's so much potential when we get mindful and exploratory and we have an agreement that when things come up, instead of viewing it as a buzzkill and, oh no, we were just on our way to having a beautiful experience and now this is showing up, we can welcome whatever's emerging as an opportunity to heal and grow, which then feeds back into our sex life so that we're more fully here, more parts of us can show up, we're more freely expressed, more integrated. And that's the best of what sex kind of offers to all of us, that we can grow and become our whole selves. Well, I agree with you that I've seen throughout the years that many, many times the challenges that many of my clients have is, has nothing to do with what's happening in that particular moment. Perhaps someone, as you said, I get clients that early in experiences, someone made fun of their labia because of their in middle school, they were young, they were misinformed, and they carry this with themselves for years and years, or they're about their bodies and how their bodies were at certain point and the messages they got when they got bullied. And also, you're right that sometimes in the family of origin, people experience the kind of a way that the scripts, they picked up the scripts around relationships, perhaps that I cannot show vulnerability. I, I work with many women that they are in higher executive positions and they don't feel safe at times to show their vulnerability and they are not able to express surrender. And part of mm-hmm. being part of like sexually connected relationship is being comfortable with being seen. So mm-hmm. you're right that this can be such a healing space. But I also wonder that when people are at stage two, often they build tons of resentment and the stories about them and the relationship. How can mm-hmm. they cultivate the willingness that they talk about when they had few years minimum of that, that kind of like maintenance sex that wasn't sufficient for them? How can they cultivate the willingness to re-engage mm-hmm. or to even have sex when it's sort of gone so poorly. Right. And if I'm thinking about, okay, like we tried everything that didn't work out or kind of the stories of my partner doesn't desire me or like the chemistry is gone and moving from that place to this place of kind of relating differently, I can imagine that's that's tough. So how do you mm-hmm. help people to move or at least open the door to that possibility? Yeah. So I have, a, of course, a number of things to say about that. First of all, beneath the resentment, beneath the hopelessness is usually a longing to reconnect. I mean, there are a few couples, of course, that are in sexless relationships and happily so, but they're not the people who are coming to us. If they're coming to us, one or both partners are not happy with the status quo. But I start with the premise that if we have internal barriers and if we feel avoidant, there's intelligence there. There's some good reasons. So one way that I build an alliance with my clients is I tell them from the get-go, nothing needs to change. And right away, there's relief because there's this by now often phobic response to even being intimate on any level. And that feeling of being broken or even bullied into having to change 
adds to the resentment and resistance. So if I begin by saying, let's start where you are and understand the no, understand the hurt, befriend it, because that's what mindfulness is. It's meeting reality on life's terms. So that rather than trying to push against something, we kind of go with what is. So often people find that when they, that they themselves don't even know what they're resisting because, you know, we have conscious knowing and then there's implicit processes that are shaping us all the time. And so my job is to help couples discover what kinds of forces are at play when they are reluctant, that even they that don't know. And when they start to feel into beneath their protectors, what's being protected, typically that's very moving for both partners. And there's a lot more compassion and a spirit of cooperation. So that's kind of setting the stage. In terms of practicalities, like what to do. So I usually frame eroticism kind of like a garden. And for our garden to thrive, it needs tending. And if we've been in a drought for a while, or we haven't planted much, we're obviously not going to have a bountiful harvest. So we can revitalize our erotic life just like we can revitalize a garden, but it does take a little bit of effort as just anything that we value in life. So that's important. It's so mystifying that people recognize that a lot needs to go into training for a profession and a lot needs to go into parenting and so forth. But people persist in believing that sex should somehow magically <laughs> flow and unfold without any effort or tending on our part. So that's the first myth to dispel. But when I frame it that way, that it's more like your erotic life has been in a dormancy, not that it, Eros is left for good or that it's going to take forever to reconnect, people go, oh, okay, I do have willingness for that. What do we need to do? So my program, so to speak, is for a couple that's been relatively estranged physically is to start with just non-threatening, non-demand physical contact of any kind. And what I'm wanting to do there is just start to get some oxytocin flowing so that they feel closer, they feel warmth and connection and safety in approaching one another, that they see the other as a feel good, not a feel bad. And that can be anything, you know, scalp massages, sort of stroking each other's cheeks, kind of kissing each other's fingertips, leaning in when they're watching TV, having the soles of their feet touching when they're lying apart on the couch, spooning, just starting to have skin-to-skin -skin proximity because, of course, that's a big part of sex. So another thing is to ban radically what we consider to be real sex. So anything that feels good and makes them happy with each other is real sex in my book. And when we say anything that feels good, that's physical, that gives you a feeling of closeness and connection is real sex, then people start to have a successful experience instead of fearing it. Another thing that I think is really important is to end when you feel complete. 
that could be up to two minutes of kissing. There's no goal here. But the key thing that I teach couples, whether it's when they're triggered or when they're shutting down or they're losing aliveness or they're defaulting into their automatic routines or they're getting self-conscious or fearful or disappointed or irritated, and the list goes on and on and on and on, is to stop. Stop and start over. And there are several variations on that. If a couple has experienced a history of abuse or they've been estranged for a while, stopping and then studying what's going on and sharing is how they start to team up. And then together, they can figure out what kind of adjustment can we make here and now so that it's better. Because what often happens, and this reinforces an avoidance cycle, which perpetuates this notion of avoiding and being in a sexless relationship, is when we endure something that doesn't feel good or we step over ourselves, we push ourselves in some way, it always costs us. It always comes back later because we now have this overcoupling of sex and pain or sex and fear. So if we interrupt that cycle, something new can happen instead. And we can start to then associate sex with pleasure and safety and cooperation. So those are a few target areas that in combination and kind of going slowly building on each other helps couples re-engage. Well, I think these are wonderful recommendations and suggestions because you're, I love the talk, the topic of uh, paying attention to your body and the importance of implicit memory because sometimes our body has its own new wisdom. And when people try specifically, I see many of my female clients feel like try to numb that of thinking about if I have alcohol, a couple of glasses of wine, then I'll be able to do this. Then you are trying to override your body and it would be hard long term to cultivate the kind of the relationship, the sexual relationship that you want to have with yourself and with your partner. And I can imagine that can be very empowering to people that to know that they have the option of changing things or not changing things. So it's not like you are now part of this program and you have to do this three times per week, all of those kind of more traditional Western approaches versus thinking about yes. Let's pause and see what's what's happening in this moment. So the, the, the healing can happen in the relationship. I love that you just brought in the body because it's a huge part of my work. What got me into this work, I, I have been a psychotherapist for many years and a trainer in a method of psychotherapy called Hakomi Mindful Somatic Psychotherapy. So I've been a body psychotherapist for decades. And... I therefore subscribe to the belief that our body has an intelligence. And if we learn to tune in, we often discover our turn on, by the way, but we also can more easily recognize what's a true yes, what's a no, what's a maybe. And our body is sending signals all the time that we can only detect if we're mindful, if we're present. And if we start to recognize, oh, that's what that means. And so one of the reasons people avoid sex, particularly if they have some history of abuse, is that they learn to distrust those signals or they've muted those signals in some way or their own judgment or putting their sexuality in their partner's hands has put their attention over on the other and not on themselves. So a big 
part of working with sexuality, from my perspective, requires that we teach people how to listen and how to set boundaries based on our felt sense, not this one size fits all rule, like never touch me there, don't use that sound, or, you know, I hate it when you come up to me from the back, or that position doesn't work for me. Because because we're constantly changing. And that just perpetuates this notion that it's not safe for me to know my experience. We just have to stay out of there. These are no-fly zones. Don't go there. Don't. But if we're actually tuning in, we can recognize what is my bandwidth today? You know, what is my capacity today? How resourced am I today? Maybe yesterday I said yes to that, but today it's a solid no. Or maybe right now it's a maybe, but in a few minutes it's going to be a no because I'm paying attention. And if they, there is an agreement, and this, this is the really big part of my work and why I work with couples around this, because you're not going to do such a practice of let's pause, stop, study, share with someone you've just met. <laughs> so if the couple is in agreement that we are choosing to be conscious about all of these things, then we're both learning how to be more sensitive and aware and we can read each other's signals better, whether that means let's pause. Even though you're saying yes, maybe we've had enough for now or to be able to attune to this erotic thread that's unfolding within between us that allows us to engage in this improvised call and response. So the body is central in my work with people. And I and I like that you're talking about this kind of like paying attention to your body and following it accordingly and communicating that with your partner as a as something that's evolving. Because sometimes people are kind of scared that okay, if it's if it's a node like our window of doing activity is getting smaller and smaller, versus thinking about today it might be a maybe, tomorrow may be a yes or no. So it also brings this element of novelty and also kind of really being present in the moment and kind of feel like, okay, what our sexual dance today can look like. And it can open up lots of possibilities. I love that you just said that because what am I saying no to? Mm-hmm. You know, so often if we're in a protective stance because we ourselves don't know how to differentiate between a yes and no, it becomes sort of a blanket no. But maybe our partner has suggested one thing and we check in and go, "Mm, not today. That doesn't mean we can't engage erotically in some other way. So if we're working in tandem, if we're really cooperative, engaged erotic team, then either one of us can say, well, where is their willingness or is their willingness in any other way? And we might find that lo and behold, there's quite a bit. So yeah, it's very fluid and it's a dance that's changing every hour, every minute. Well, Macy, I really enjoyed your book and I can talk about all of these wonderful concepts and information for hours with you, but we're toward the end of our time. So I bet many of our listeners that they find that this message is resonates with them and they want to learn more about your book because I know we talked about such a small part of all the wonderful things that you mentioned in your book. So tell us more about your book and where can people have access to it? Absolutely. So the book is called Passion and Presence. Couple's Guide to Awakened Intimacy and Mindful Sex. And it was published by Shambhala Publications, so you can get it there, or any online retailer. So 
easily accessible even during these restricted times. I also, my book actually grows out of a series of retreats that I have been leading in the United States and abroad since 2010 with my husband, who's also a psychologist, Alka Weiss. And COVID is kind of requiring us to go online like everybody else. And we're starting our next Awakened Intimacy series in January both as a weekend retreat and as an eight-session extended retreat. We're starting what we call part one, and we're also doing part two. We now teach in a four-part kind of series. And the book is a beautiful complement. The book has a lot of reflection activities and exercises that couples can get started with. And if they want more hands-on immersive coaching from us and to go a little deeper into the practice, I highly recommend our events. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing all of these resources to us. The link to all of those will be in our show notes. Thank you so much for coming in on the show. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you found our conversation useful. I highly recommend Macy's book because it has tons of good exercises that you can do with your partner to reawaken that connection. I'm personally more action-oriented, so if I want to change something, I need to do activities to change that. So as I shared with you guys at the beginning of this episode, this is our four-year anniversary, and I have some interesting gifts for you. So Promescent has been very generous. It's a company that sponsored us in the past. They have tons of good stuff. I personally use their product. They have tons of great stuff and they were so gracious. For our giveaway, I chose to gift you guys something that I personally use. So I put together this bundle box from Promescent. It's a company that they produce tons of different sexual wellness products. They were our sponsor in the past. And the only reason that I'm using their products for our giveaway is that I love it. I personally use use arousal gel. I use Vitaflux. They send me samples and I loved it and I ordered more. So you will, one lucky winner will win a one bottle of standard delay spray, female arousal gel, organic-based lube, Vitaflux, before and after wipes, and the cost of the entire box is 154. And we also give two gift cards for Amazon away. All you need to do is to write us a review in iTunes, take a screenshot of your review. You can email it to me at drmoali at oasis2care.com or you can DM me in my social media and Instagram. My Instagram handle is at sexology. I'm looking forward to see your reviews and hopefully three lucky winners will get some exciting stuff from us. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.